Welcome to the Third Growth Option Podcast, where we talk with business leaders and innovators hungry to drive growth that can be faster than internal organic growth and less risky than acquisition. Your moderator is Bernal Dunkerspuller, Chief Sherpa and CEO at Realign, who has led private equity-owned distributors through turnarounds and growth. With battle-proven leaders from all frontiers, we want to provoke thinking about business growth beyond conventional wisdom and binary choices. Hi, I'm Benno, talking today with Nicole Armstrong, a social entrepreneur, founder CEO of Queen City Certified, nation's first data-informed employer certification program to guide companies with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome to Third Growth Option Podcast, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you Nicole you said a couple of things to me when we when we first talked about doing a podcast together that really struck me one you said you're interested in growth connecting the personal and the professional space the notion that um, both people and businesses cannot grow to their fullest potential if employees are holding back or are being held back from a personal growth perspective and that you know and the second thing that you know you really want to make a difference with these DEI challenges out of kind of a personal frustration maybe that as a society we're not addressing it fast enough or or strongly enough so you founded Queen City certified you help companies redesign systems through both a roadmap and certification process just tell me a little more about Queen City certified and and who you are and how you operate there Yeah, absolutely. So I founded the organization in 2018, like you said, you know, sort of out of personal frustration with the workforce. And, you know, I think there, at the time, there had been a lot of top workplace lists and things like that. But from the lenses of equity, meaning, you know, how do we really create um, systems that make it possible for all people to succeed? There was, there was no, I think, public facing sort of certification or symbol or communication that would allow employees to know if a company really embraced the values of equity. And so in 2018, we founded this organization. You know, it was this wild idea. At the time, I didn't even know if organizations would be interested. I'd actually applied for a fellowship to get funding to try out this crazy idea. And what I was really shocked by is how many organizations really did want to participate. You know, I think so many organizations are... They know that that a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace is important, particularly when it comes to engaging their employees, but they don't quite know what to do or how to get there. And um, my initial goal with all of this was to really understand what does the data tell us? What does the research tell us? What actually works? You know, because I think there had been a lot of conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, but what I was more interested in is how do we get the outcomes that we're actually aiming to achieve? You know, because we've been, organizations have been hosting diversity trainings for decades now. It's funny because my mom says, even as a nurse, she's since retired, but she said, even as a nurse, we did diversity trainings and you, and we just really haven't made the progress that we've wanted to see. We haven't seen a real shift in representation and leadership. We haven't seen a shift in sort of access to opportunities so much in the ways that we would hope to by this point, right? So what I wanted to understand was, what does the research tell us? What works? How do we actually disrupt some of this bias in our system so that we can make sure that all people have access to these opportunities and can thrive? And that's really what inspired Queen City Certified. And I think the reason that we took sort of this equity lens is that 
a lot of these challenges are systems level challenges. And I think when we're thinking about systems level challenges, we need systems level solutions. And that's essentially what equity is. When you're talking system level, you're, you're talking about internal organization challenges, internal, the way an organization, a business, a, any group sort of operates as a group, as a business. Exactly. So we're talking about policies, we're talking about practices, right? I think when we think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, we often think of trainings. We've heard a lot about implicit bias trainings. We've heard a lot about diversity trainings. But the challenge with that is that it puts the onus on the individual, right? It says we need to be aware of our own personal biases, which we do. That's incredibly important. But the fact is, is that most of these are unconscious. So when those kind of biases are influencing our decision-making, we're not aware of it. And so the challenge is that we won't get to the changes that we need unless we change the systems themselves. And I'll use an example of this. There had been a study done that was featured in Harvard Business Review that basically found that if there's one woman or one person of color in a final pool of candidates, they statistically have zero chance of getting hired. So when you think of the implications of that, right, sometimes people will put in a framework to say, well, you have to interview at least one woman or one person of color. But if that's the case, we know it's it's just statistically not going to work. It's not going to move the needle on where we want to go. Now, if you increase that, so say you have two women or two people of color, the chances of hiring a woman or a color or a person of color jump to at least 50% respectively. So it's 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 this notion of being able to sort of disrupt the bias in our brains within the operational systems themselves. It's the same thing when it comes to measurement, right? So we can conduct all the trainings we want, but if we're not measuring who are we interviewing, who are we hiring, who's being promoted, do we have targets? Do we even know where we want to go, right? You know, there's sort of this assumption that diverse teams and, and equity and inclusive teams will happen organically, but it's actually not true. We actually have to be really intentional about creating uh, workplaces that embrace these and building that into every system within the organization. Because, you know, a friend of mine, we had a conversation about affirmative action. And, and I think, you know, DEI and affirmative action both have sort of a political baggage, let's just say. And he said something very interesting about affirmative action. He says, before the Civil Rights Act 50 years ago, right, there was affirmative action the other way. There was affirmative action, you know, for white people. <laughs> Absolutely. I was <laughs> right. actually, it's so funny you said that because that was my first thought is we've had a f- affirmative action since the beginning of this country, since the founding of this country. But it was, yeah, it was for white, white individuals and particularly white men. Yeah. Even when we think about what you needed to be to become a citizens of the United States, right? You had to be white. And so, yeah, we've, we've had affirmative action as part of our, our history since the founding of our country. It's just, it wasn't intended to benefit Everybody. minorities. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Right. It was a select few. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so this whole idea of diversity and change, you know, are, they're, they're both, those are two words that people feel uncomfortable with, right? Change because, you know, it's hard. <laughs> and diversity because it makes people feel defensive, right? Uh, it's like, well, well, of course I embrace diversity. Or what are you calling me, a racist? I'm not a racist, right? Or, you know, I don't like the government telling me to do something. And so how do you find yourself or maybe your team sort of changing the conversation in a way that better engages people and, you know, without making them defensive? That's a great question. I think, especially now that so much of the conversation has become polarized, 
particularly when we think about this notion of critical race theory, it's become it's become part of of everyday conversation. And I think for the most part, a lot of folks don't really understand what it is. And they're starting to roll this notion of diversity, equity, inclusion in any conversations around systemic inequality into this into this term. And I think what I would say is when we talk with our organizations, when we talk with our leaders and we have these conversations, they can feel uncomfortable and they're supposed to feel uncomfortable. When we start to address some of the systemic inequality, the oppression that we've built into a lot of our systems historically, it's going to feel uncomfortable. And But one way that we sort of address that is we frame it as this notion of my facilitator, Luna, who's, who does a really wonderful job with a lot of our leaders, she uses this framework of resources and restrictions. And I think instead of using the term privilege, we've heard that term a lot. And I think that can be polarizing sometimes when you use it. As baggage. Yeah. (laughs) Well, people think, well, you know, maybe I grew up in a low-income household. I don't have privilege. Or I grew up in, you know, I didn't have my education paid for. I had other, I grew up, you know, with another uh, sort of challenge that that didn't give me all of the resources that, that I would have needed to succeed. But when we frame it instead of privilege by saying resources and restrictions, then we can begin to have this conversation that we all have resources and restrictions, every single one of us. And it's just in different ways. And what that means is that, particularly now, I'll speak from my own personal experiences. As a woman, I have faced some restrictions over my life because of my gender, right? That You know, when we think about, I think back to all of the messages women get, particularly in college and high school, of how to keep themselves safe, right? And, you know, men of a similar age, they're not, they're not given those same messages. They're not told to carry their keys between their fingers or not to walk alone at night or to make sure to text a friend the moment you get home or not to leave your drink unattended, right? All these things that we encourage women to do. That is a restriction in a way, right? We're sort of restricting how you can operate in the world. But I have so many resources as well. I know that I don't have to worry that when I'm pulled over by a police officer, if I'm speeding or I have a broken taillight, that I may become, you know, physically injured or physically assaulted by the police officer. I don't have to worry about that. And that's, that's really because of the white skin that I have, right? That is a resource. My perceived race has given me resources that others don't have. My gender may have given me some restrictions. I'm also able-bodied. Right? I'm not a person living with a disability. And so I have a lot of resources because I don't face those same challenges. So when we talk about sort of the frameworks around these difficult topics, we like to frame it in terms of resources and restrictions because each of us have resources and each of us have restrictions in certain ways. The challenges come when someone has multiple restrictions based on sort of the social categorizations that they've been given, whether that's their race or their ability or their age or their family status, or maybe it's their sexual orientation or gender identity. So that's how we frame it. And I think when we start to look at it in that way, it becomes less polarizing because then we can say, okay, we can start to see how that really functions within our society. We can see examples of that happening within our society. And we're not accusing anybody or or wanting them to feel guilty for the identities that they hold. We're really just saying, look, you didn't get to choose the identities you hold, but some of those identities come with the resources that have helped you get to where you are. And some of them might've come with restrictions. Just sort of a simple pros and cons list almost, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you think about it that way, and then we start to have more empathy with people, right? Then we start to say, okay, we all have these things, but now I can recognize that someone might have more restrictions than I do. 
because of the identities that they hold. And so how do we begin to restructure our systems to remove those barriers, to remove those restrictions? And then the way you framed resources and and restrictions just now was in terms of an individual. When you do the roadmap for a client organization, does that also include that perspective of resources and restrictions at an organizational level? Oh, absolutely. So when we think of it in terms of, you know, I think this is what is so important when we talk about the personal and the systemic, they are so intertwined, right? Like you mentioned before, your friend said, oh, we've had affirmative action. It was just in reverse. That's absolutely true. And we've built that into our system. So even when we think about the workplace, right? We know that when we think about how we hire, where are we recruiting? How are we writing those job descriptions? What is the language that we're using? What colleges are we recruiting from, right? All these things we've sort of built into the systems themselves. And what's really interesting, you know, I when we think about recruiting, for instance, or when we're thinking about finding team members to join our organizations, we know that when we think about who is being referred to these organizations, you know, I think everyone has worked at an organization that has a referral process or some sort of referral process in place where it's sort of encouraged for folks to help find other team members. And the challenge with that is that we often surround ourselves by people who look like us and act like us and talk like us and have a similar background. And so if we know that we're sort of, we have this, what we call like affinity bias. Well, when we think about how that might impact the workplace, we know that more than a third of jobs are actually filled through referrals in general. We know that white women are 12% less likely uh, to get referrals than white men. BIPOC men, so black, indigenous, and people of color are 26% less likely to get referrals. BIPOC women are 35% less likely to get referrals than a white man, than a white male counterpart. So when you think about the impact on the workplace, if you have a referral bonus built into your workplace, if you reward people for referrals, think about that, right? We're rewarding people for referring others who are very similar to them. So we're literally building bias into our systems. That's how sort of the personal and the systemic become intertwined. That's how they're interconnected. And this happens in a lot of different places. We could look at the same as parental leave. If you're an organization and you offer maternity leave, but you don't offer paternity leave, you're really, in essence, saying that childcare is a woman's responsibility, right? That we don't view men as equal partners in parenting or in caregiving. And so we're sort of reinforcing this this outdated notion. So there's a lot of ways that we actually build bias into our workplace systems. And most of that stems from personal bias, but that personal bias is ingrained through a society that has, you know, built some of these biases into our systems as well. So it's sort of this cycle, this ongoing cycle. And the only way to break a cycle is by recognizing there there is an issue which is what is so sad, right, when, when, when the political baggage and the polarization enters this picture where, you know, politicians running around saying, well, we're not a racist country and, or I'm not a racist person. And it's like, don't, don't be defensive, guys. Let's, let's address it. You know, I, I grew up in Germany and, and I remember, you know, back in the 70s, which was only 
25 years after World War II, right, or 30 years after, after that war, there was so much conversation around, you know, the mistakes that Nazi Germany had made 30 years earlier. And that has helped Germans face, you know, just be very honest about, hey, our grandfather's generation screwed up. And that doesn't make you anti-German. And I feel like in the U.S., great, 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 great grandparents screwed up with slavery, that was a blemish, and that doesn't make you anti-American to say that. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right. But people have these blind spots, and, 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 and I feel like, you know, just the way you're describing, you know, sort of, I love the concept of, you know, of resources and restrictions, and, and the way you're describing sort of, sort of, you know, statistical facts makes it easier, I think, for people to see these blind spots and see that, ah, yeah, okay, I, I didn't think about it this way. Absolutely. I, and I think I love the parallel you've made with Germany because that's something we've talked about before as well in conversation is this notion that if you can't acknowledge and learn from your past, right, the, the expression is that you're doomed to repeat it. And I think that the challenge that we're hearing now, the rhetoric we're hearing now is that if we point it out, if we acknowledge it, it will somehow create more division. It will somehow create a tension that we don't want. The fact is that there's already some division. There's already some tension. And people have been living with the pain of systemic inequality and systemic racism in particular since the founding of our country. And so whether we choose to acknowledge it or not doesn't change the pain and the fact that it's there. It's there regardless. And it hurts everybody. That's the thing. It hurts everybody. You know, I think when we think about race in particular, you know, I think sometimes in this country, we're afraid to talk about it because it's a painful history. People may feel shame. People may feel pain and they don't know what to do about it. And so it's easier just not to talk about it or to think it's something of the past. But it couldn't possibly be something of the past when we've built it into every system that we have, right? It can't be part of the past when it still shows up today. You know, we think about the founding of this country. You had to be white to become a citizen. You had to be a citizen to get land. That land was actually taken from people that that had that had a rightful, uh, you know, were rightfully that owned it using before. this land. Who owned it, right? In, <laughs> if, if, in some sense of ownership, right? And so... We can't possibly think that those don't have repercussions and how those things are showing up today. Even when we think of the New Deal, when we think about how neighborhoods were intentionally segregated, there's a history in our country of wanting to divide people into different communities and providing more resources to white communities than to communities of color. Uh, when we think about redlining, when we think about not having access to actually purchase a home, you couldn't even get a loan to purchase a home. Or even there were communities like Levittown or even in, um, in, Ohio, in Cincinnati, we have one called Marimont, where you weren't allowed to resell to a family of color, right? There were laws on the books that literally segregated neighborhoods. And then, and then we built laws around education and how we would fund it. And we made it based on property taxes, property values. So when we think about the repercussions of the systems that we've put in place, it's not a thing of the past, Right? Racial inequity is not a thing of the past. It's living with us today. It's sort of an evolution of slavery in a way, of the, of the, the racial 
discrimination and oppression that we had hundreds of years ago. It's just taken a different form. And so I think people get uncomfortable talking about it because we want to think that it's something that happened a long time ago, but it's not. And acknowledging it. We're all good now. (laughs) Right. We're all good now. Or or I didn't own slaves or my family didn't own slaves or they came over later. Well, that's fine. But we all, if you have white skin, you benefit from white supremacy, right? If you benefit from the systems that have been designed to serve you, regardless of whether you chose, no one's saying that folks chose to be born the way that they were born, but you still benefit from it. It's okay to acknowledge that you have resources based on that because then you can start to say, okay, how do we reimagine these systems to be more equitable? But if we refuse to just even acknowledge that those systems are in place or we refuse to even acknowledge that they're having sort of a, a, a harmful impact on communities of color, but also all Americans really, it's harmful for everybody, then we can't move forward, right? We can't move forward if we don't even want to have the conversation. And it's a, a couple of months ago, uh, U.S. Census data came out, right? Every 10 years, I think they, they do them. And it was the first time, I don't know if in, in decades or in forever, that white Caucasians didn't grow in numbers. So the percentage of white Caucasians is quickly approaching less than 50%. It's not, you know, I don't know if it's a 65 or 60, it's not there yet, but in the next 10 or 20 years, it, it will be less than 50%. How has that change in skin color percentages, right, uh, representation, changed conversations you were having with business leaders? Has it added urgency to the conversation or has it added defensiveness? How do you see that? I think a little of both, right? I think organizations recognize that in order to be really successful, they need to be able to recruit the top talent. And that top talent is going to come from a variety of sources. And so this this notion of diversity being good for business, that's absolutely true. There's data to support that, that when you have diverse lived experiences, when you have diverse perspectives, your team is more innovative. It's good for business. It's good for the team. It's good for the company. And so I think a lot of uh, business leaders and employers recognize that. They know that. Living that can be a little bit harder, right? So when we start to think about redesigning systems, it's not entirely easy to redesign or restructure a system. Sometimes we assume that things are the way they are because that's the way they should be. And that's actually not the case. And so it takes some real commitment. It takes some time. It takes energy. It takes resources. And so I think organizations, as they recognize that that the country's demographics are changing, that the workforce is changing, and that they need to respond to that, I think, yes, it's adding a sense of urgency And in some instances, I think organizations are trying to respond quickly, particularly over the last couple of years because of the national conversation and spotlight on police brutality and systemic racism. I think organizations are really struggling to respond quickly. But the one thing that that we always talk about with our employers is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. There is no easy solution to this challenge. You know, we talked about this, this sort of web of the interpersonal and the systemic. Well, we can also talk about the institutional and the ideological, right? There's all these different pieces that work together to uphold these systems. And so it's going to take some time to break those down and to reimagine those. And so I think organizations, yes, they are committed. They want to do the right thing and the best thing for their organizations. They want to embrace diversity by creating an equitable and inclusive workplace, but that requires a lot of intention and commitment. And so that's where we will start to see sort of where 
truly committed organizations are versus the ones who want to sort of have that short-term window uh, dressing. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then for individuals, you know, I think when we think about the people who are participating, you know, you mentioned earlier change, this notion of change. And I think people know that change is inevitable, but it can also be scary. And I think sometimes the backlash to this work comes from a scarcity mindset, right? That there's a limited number of resources. And so if somehow we start to build more equitable systems, that somehow I'll lose something, right? Something will be taken away from me. Or, you know, there's this notion of, I don't know what the future holds and that's scary. I think sometimes people shy away from conversation or they shy away from change because of fear, And I think that's what's driving a lot of this polarization right now is fear, fear of the unknown, fear of losing power that that maybe you never earned, but you've always had. And that's how politicians hold on to power, right, is by peddling fear, oftentimes anyway. You know, just listening to you talk about DEI and putting data around problem areas and putting strategy and roadmaps to help individuals, help organizations rethink, you know, this sort of painful topic is, it's, it's, you're giving me a lot of hope because you're, you're, you're talking about it in, in a, in an empathetic way, in a rational way, in a, in a future directed way. And you're also uh, facing you know, facing the the problem head on, and and and, you know, you you said in an earlier conversation, you know, pain is where the growth happens. You're accepting, and I think helping your clients accept that, yeah, there is pain, whether they know it or not, whether the, you know, whether they talk about it or not, whether the employee expresses it or not, there is pain, and your work is just sort of empathetically and logically addressing that. Am I overreaching here? No, no, not at all. And I, you know, I think that when it comes to growth, when it comes to making progress, I always joke that we are sort of unabashedly pro peer pressure. We take in, <laughs> we take sort of this, this asset based approach at Queen City Certified, because it's, you know, you could, you could easily point fingers at a company and say, here's all the things they're not doing. Or you could easily point fingers at an individual and say, here's all the things they're not doing to create a more equitable society or a more equitable workplace. But what our goal really to do is to sit down with employers and say, okay, let's take a look at what you are doing. How can we accompany you on this journey to get you to the next step, to get the progress that you're really hoping to achieve? Because it's the right thing to do and it's good for business, right? We know all of the things, the beneficial things that come out of this work. But I think we still do have to acknowledge that it's uncomfortable work. There really is no easy solution. There's no one training that's going to solve this challenge. There's no one... There's no one workshop that fixes it? Correct. No. <laughs> and if someone's peddling that, Dang. then it's, it's snake oil, right? There's no one solution to this. And the other piece that we always try to reemphasize is that everyone's experiences are very different, that people aren't monoliths either. When we're talking about women in the workplace or Black employees or Latinx employees or BIPOC in other people of color, if we're talking about those living with disabilities, people aren't monoliths and their experiences are shaped by each unique identity that they hold. 
And so our goal, specifically to your point, is this notion of empathy. How do we solve for those who've been most historically excluded, most historically marginalized? If we can solve for those folks, we can solve for everyone. And so part of the challenge is really to start looking at systems and frameworks through the lenses of equity to say, who was this designed by? Who was in the room? Who does it serve? What are some of the unintended consequences that it might have? When we start to shift our framework, then we can start to really think, okay, as we're looking at the way that our workplace is structured, we can acknowledge some of the things that maybe functioned in the past when the workforce was predominantly white and male in some industries, right? (laughs) Mad men. (laughs) Right, exactly. And now it's no longer that way. So it's okay to let go of some of those things. Right. What worked then isn't working now, and it probably didn't really work <laughs> work, then work then either. I mean, it, it served a select few, but as we begin Exhibit to- Exhibit the whiskey in the, in, in, exactly. in the, in the drawer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Right, right. The, the rampant sexual harassment, all of, the, all of those things that, that, we, that we saw in the Mad Men era. Those things, you know, we need to be able to be open to change and say, okay, how do we move forward collectively? And so our goal as an organization is really to accompany employers on that journey and to say, this doesn't have to be scary and you don't have to do everything at once because you can't, right? This is an ongoing journey. And so we identify where their biggest pain points are. And that might be with one organization that might be BIPOC employees. At another organization, it might be folks who identify as LGBTQ. Uh, You know, each organization is different. And then we say, okay, let's focus our efforts there. Let's say, what can we do to restructure and redesign our systems to be more equitable? How can we create and foster a more inclusive workplace where people feel like they can be their authentic selves? And then we measure that. You know, certification is good for two years. And there's a really important reason for that, that this isn't a one-time sort of, I've put these things in place and now everything's fixed, right? This is a constant learning experience. Let's measure what works. Let's see what we need to do Maintenance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. It's a journey. You, you, you got to have tune-ups and oil changes. <laughs> you absolutely right, right? You cannot think that you can do one thing and think it will be solved. And the other thing that we remind folks of is workplaces are just microcosms of our of our culture, of our society. You know, we sometimes hold businesses and employers up to a standard that doesn't even exist within our own society as a whole. We can achieve equity in the workplace when we can achieve equity in American society because workplaces are just made up of individuals with their own lived experiences and perspectives and biases and ideologies, right? They're just microcosms of society. So we always remind folks that, you know, we're, when it comes down to it, we're working with people and we're working with people who've created systems. And so we have to acknowledge that and be willing to work with that if we're going to expect to make some changes. Thank you so much for coming on this episode and explaining and describing, you know, the the challenge that you're trying to help with and how you help companies and organizations address it sort of methodically and over time and and, and then measuring the progress that you're helping them make along the way. If folks wanted to reach out to you one-on-one, you know, do you want to give I don't know, an email address or a website or a, a place where they could find you. Yeah, absolutely. Folks can always reach out at queencitycertified.com. And you can also email us directly at hello at queencitycertified.com. We'd love to hear from you. And um, like I said, we're, you know, there is a way forward. 
And part of that starts with exactly as you were saying, sort of having an objective view, looking at our systems, learning from our past, and moving forward together. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hey, if uh, folks wanted to explore other growth topics, you can find me on our website, uh, realignforresults.com, or just email Benno, B-E-N-N-O, at realignforresults.com. Thanks, and keep growing. You can listen to more episodes on Apple, Spotify, or Google. We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review it. Share it with your friends or colleagues if you enjoyed the content. Always growing.